Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We need now to work double hard to overturn. On the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. It's called the Phillips Curve. The government is too big, it's too intrusive, it restricts what we can My do. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Remember how Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in the US because although it had bought government bonds with the money its customers had deposited, those bonds went down in value. So there was a gap between the money held and the money deposited. They were insolvent, in other words, even though they had bought supposedly the safest financial instrument on earth, US treasuries, US government bonds. So did they buy when there was a bond bubble over the last 10 years? That's what we've seen. And it was set to burst just like shares. QE. Is it behind all of this? QE and the bond bubble. That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, bond prices have been coming down in price. That's why yields are so much higher. But they're coming back from a high when yields were low. So this week, first of all, I mean, we'll begin by sorting out that relationship between bond prices and yields. Then we're going to ask, what's all this volatility that's causing all of this? And have central banks got anything to do with this? Uh, Spoiler alert. Yes, of course they have. (laughs) Uh, But first of all, this inverse relationship between, just so we know, we're all on the same page. This inverse relationship between bond prices and yields. Who wants to explain that? Do you want to do it or or shall I do it? You have a crack. My voice is cracking a bit. Well, let's let's look at the idea that you've got a hundred dollars worth of bonds, and they've got a they pay ten percent interest. Mm. They've got ten percent coupon rate. So mm. when the government issues it, they say, right, hundred dollars will pay. We're very generous, uh, just because my math isn't very good. We'll pay you ten. We'll pay you ten percent every year. Every year, interest every year. Yeah. But then somewhere along the line, you sell it and you sell it. You can't get $100 for it because there's not the same demand for those for those bonds. Mm. And, of course, with bonds, there's a whole load of factors. It is a complicated trading environment because mm. they've got different durations. They've got different lengths of uh, – Different issuers, yeah. And, 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 of course, you know, in a competitive market where there's so, so many other assets. So rather than – even though I paid $100 for it, I can only sell it for $90. Mm. But the coupon is still – Ten dollars. Yeah. So rather than being ten percent, it's going to be a little 11. over eleven. Eleven point one percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why. So that happens all the time. That's an uh, automatic mechanism. So yeah. bond yields, and so people look and say, well, okay, what's the yield on these bonds? And mm-hmm. there's people are trading based on the yield, which is really trading based on the on, on the price. Mm-hmm. And those yields also obviously influence things like interest rates. Very mm. hard for the government to say interest rates or central banks to, to talk about interest rates being at a particular price if the market is trading bonds with the yields a million miles away from mm. where they want to control interest rates. So in, in a way, the market is also controlling the ability for central banks to do what they what they want to do. So Not really. This is one area where MMT is very important. We'll come back to that, though. All right. Okay. 
Well, explain why. Well, see, because if you look at how 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 a bond's bought, okay, and the MMT point is that when when a government runs a deficit, it has to be, uh, cover that with bond issues, and it also issues bonds for outstanding interest payments as well. So that. When it issues, when the, when it runs a deficit and it pays interest on existing bonds, it puts money in people's deposit accounts, whether that's you know, individuals in the non-bank sector or non-bank financial institutions or the banks themselves. The three potential locations mm-hmm. that the money can go into. They also put exact. They have to, in accounting sense, put exactly the same amount in reserves. So the reserves go up. Now, if the reserves were, for example, offering zero interest, which is what they historically did until the financial crisis in 2008, um, then you're getting, you've got money in your bank, which is getting no interest. You're getting an asset, which is not earning income. Now, if the government comes along and says, we're going to give you 1% interest on that versus zero, will you take the deal? Yes, you will, even if the rate of interest, rate of inflation is 10%. Because it's better to get one percent than nothing zero. at all. So yeah. in that sense, the government doesn't have to be beholden to the bond market. This no. is the point which mm. uh, was made when uh, who's the predecessor to Sunak? I've forgotten the name. Truss. Yeah. Okay. When Truss came along with her, very briefly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the idea was oh the the the, the bond markets putting up rates. We can't afford it. We're being blackmailed by the bond market. They could have done it. They could have literally offered 1% because so long as you offered more on bonds than you got on reserves, then those bonds would have been sold in the primary dealer market. Right. It's very different. But it doesn't happen, though, does it? I mean, no, it doesn't because this is because bankers and wankers, I'm sorry, and politicians don't understand the damn monetary system they're in charge of. Right. And so they believe that they are beholden to... They believe the, they are, yeah. By the I mean, market. It sort of helps as well if you happen to be a financial market speculator. What's the current Prime Minister's name? Rishi Sunak. You know, I, actually, yep. I've, I've got to get in touch with the Australian comedian uh, Dan Illich. Dan, I annoyed Dan, or Dan got annoyed by the people marketing my, my course and my cartoon book recently, so I've got to make an apology to Dan one way. But Dan, back when Australia had the same sort of political instability that England has now. When, you know, mm. uh, Dan, the, the, you know, there used to be... To We're get getting the, through every prime, yeah, prime minister would last a year at best. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, Dan, Dan did this great joke of the, you know, there used to be a telephone system. You could ring up the telephone and say, at the third stroke, it yeah. will be 12, uh, three, yeah. precisely. Yeah. So he, he had, at the third stroke, the prime minister of Australia will be. <laughs> and I paid 500 bucks for that as a joke to get... Go on his podcast. So you could do it for the Australian. You could do it for the British right now. So Dan, you need to change it across from the Australian Prime Minister to yeah, the yeah. British Prime Minister. Yeah, exactly. So he's called Sunak, isn't he? Yeah, Rishi Sunak. Sunak. Yeah, yeah. and he, that. yeah, I'm sure he has a lot of money invested in uh, in in bonds, and uh, very yeah. interested. But look, um, th- th- there has been a lot of volatility in the bond market. So mm. it was always the safe bet, wasn't it? I mean, it was. You know, if you if you uh, if you've got a portfolio and, uh, you know, your portfolio manager says, uh, well, do you want to go on a low risk or high risk? I mean, it's, it's basically if you say it's high risk. versus shares. shares. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't have a big portfolio, but I do, I do have a portfolio manager. And I had that conversation. And he says, well, you're very lucky you chose the high risk because the low risk one. Fell in value. Yeah, well, I mean, they both fell in value, but the lowest one fell more. This is actually the curious thing about this last period. I mean, I'm I'm not following the stock market anything like I I used to Mm. because of my work on climate change now. But um, 
this was, I think, the first time in history that you had bonds falling in value and shares falling in value. Yeah. And normally one goes down, the other will go up. To sort of, and that, that's the sort of portfolio balancing nonsense that has dominated financial advisors ever since. I know. It's been a, it's been a crazy topsy-turvy world in, yeah, in that sense. Yeah. So 10-year Treasury yields in 1990 were up over 8%. They have been progressively lowering so bond prices have been going up in other words mm. for the reason we've explained while yields go down so they went down to one and a half percent in february 2020 uh before the pandemic i mean there were ups and downs but you know the the trend was downward mm. in yields so we saw bond prices going up progressively and i actually bought bonds on that basis in 1993 right knowing that they would not keep knowing on. but uh, gambling on my knowledge of minsky's financial instability hypothesis that with rising private debt the government would be the central bank would be forced into lower interest rates without actually even knowing why that was happening and so bond prices are likely to rise right. that was I, I should have bought property okay because they made they, they <laughs> pumped up property far more than they pumped up bond prices and my then wife wanted me to buy property and i said no I refused to ride a bubble in 1994. But I did. She said, what will you buy? And I said, I'll buy bonds. So we bought $200,000 worth of government bonds. Is this how you get through wives? Huh? Is this how you get through? What? How many wives have you had now? Only this three. Is, oh, just the three. Yeah. So is it is it is it a common pattern? You get in there, and she says, "Let's buy a house," and you know, go, "No, it's I refuse to buy a bubble." No, it was only they one. Look that, at, was they one look at, that was a one-off. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that how that could end a relationship, though. You did work pretty she well. Wants no, the, she it, wants the house. Well, and I, you're I won't there, say so. who walked out the door, but it wasn't the usual story. <laughs> so look, this this rising in 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 bond prices over Maybe that decade. Then, so this let's get back to this though. So having a bit of fun here. Well, okay. Let's just talk about Steve Keen's love life for the next. That's minutes. enough of all that. Now back to the finance. Okay. <laughs> uh, so look, so we've we've seen bond prices so over that period since 1990 yeah. just progressively rising. going up and up. Mm. So what's been the cause? Well, fundamentally, the cause has been rising private debt. And this is why I say, again, you've got people in charge of the monetary system who don't understand the monetary system. Because if you go back to government policy, like Federal, Federal Reserve interest rate setting during the days of Vokla, for example, rate rises were one and often. I think there was actually a couple of 2% increases mm. in interest rates under Vokla. Yeah. Now, why could that that you know trash the economy? We had a, the Vokla recession, which ended inflation by crushing the economy and crushing trade unions. Talks about very fondly though by those people, the same people who are trying to crush the economies globally now. By well, you know, the, yeah, the, so if only we could be as bold as Vokla was. Yeah. yeah, but what he did was what he thought he was readjusting was inflationary expectations. That was mm. the Milton Friedman nonsense he was following. What he did to crush the economy instead, and then of course inflation went down with it, and. But so a large part of why they can't put the rates up now is because a one or two percent increase in interest rates on like on a monthly basis. So the meetings to set the rates were every month. So you could potentially expect your rates to go up and you know, one percent increase every month for several months. That would bankrupt people on a grand scale. The 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 break is much, much bigger if the scale of the debt that you're putting the interest rate up on is that much higher yeah and that's what it, that's what it was under vogue but uh, under, just because you're talking about a bigger percentage bigger slice of people's income yeah, that yeah. Being spent to so now we have we talk about a 25 basis point change mm. well it used to be 100 basis points mm. we only invented the term basis point to cover the fact that we'd had interest rate changes of less than one percent and uh, and and what was actually going on was rising private debt. So the bang they got out of an interest rate rise was much bigger than they expected, and so ultimately they came down to one a quarter percent changes 
rather than the 1% of the olden days. So the right falling interest rates... We've been having rates, a few 50 basis points. Huh? We've been having a few 50 basis point rises lately. You, mind you, you watch what happened to they try one, one, 100 basis points. Mm. But yeah, so fundamentally, the, the falling interest rates have been driven by rising private debt. Right, and again, this is yet yet again the causal role of, of of private debt in the economy, which mainstream economists haven't got an effing clue about. Right, I was going to say fucking, but I thought you might ban it from the. <laughs> you don't know. I hope no one from Apple is listening. Uh, okay. But, um, so okay, just uh, go into more detail on that then, just so a step by step. So we've got so we, we've got more debt. Yeah, I've, we're carrying more debt. So to explain to that why well, that. If you this again is the the importance of credit in a capitalist economy. Yeah. Again, this is something which I I did the, the very first mathematics on it in 2017, showing mathematically the credit is part of aggregate demand and income. Uh, because the mindset with neoclassicals have is with the loanable funds model is that you know uh, de- a bank lending money is really a bank enabling Phil to lend Steve some money and charging the introduction fee. I call that the Ashley Madison theory of banking for those who know what Ashley Madison is there for. And no, I haven't done that on my sex life. So, <laughs> uh, But anyway, um, so... The, the, if the bank's an intermediary like that, if Bill, if Phil's bank account falls and Steve's rises, one compensates the other, and there's no particular impact upon aggregate demand. That's the fictional world that mainstream economists live in, and that's why they think the level of private debt doesn't matter. And that the, when you do the mathematics on that and you model it, if you lived in a world where banks were introduction agencies, then a rising level of private debt would have no impact on the no no necessary impact upon GDP. Now the world we actually live in is where banks originate debt and money. So I call that bank originated money and debt or bombed. Uh, so in that situation, the money is created by the bank. The assets go up, which is the the debt. Their liabilities go up, which is money. They've created money. The people who, the person who's borrowed the money has done it for the purposes of spending. So that credit demand becomes part of aggregate demand and income. Okay? So that's what's what the mainstream is not aware of. Now, what it means is if you, when you put up interest rates, you are likely to affect people's willingness to borrow. You therefore reduce credit, so you reduce aggregate demand. That's the real mechanism by which interest rate rises moderate demand by changing credit demand. Right, but how does that demand then translate into this fact that we've seen um, the the price of bonds increasing so much over this couple well, of years? Well, the most recent one, that's, 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 that's the total curly. I mean, the falling trend was driven by rising private debt. When we got this inflationary surge, that's coming from a, a range of factors. I haven't done careful work on this myself, but mm. uh, but the main elements I identified uh, in a sort of um, casual way, given my own understanding, is first of all the impact of, of, of COVID on supply chains. Yeah, but before COVID, so we've gone from, you know, <clears> prices have been going up and yields have been getting... bonds were falling until yeah, that, COVID. So the yields were falling. The yields were falling. Bond yeah, prices, prices were rising. Prices were rising. Those yeah. are, but prices were rising. But yields have gone from eight percent down to one and a half percent. Yeah. So why that gradual decline? Be- because again of the impact of private debt. Mm. Because what what the private what the central banks think they're doing is following the Taylor rule, and the Taylor rule tells them that the putting interest rates up will reduce inflation. Okay, fundamentally, that's what the rule says. And all involves the number two are turning up in, as an average rate of inflation. Um, I was just say you could reduce neoclassical economics to three numbers. Uh, a 2% uh, central bank rate of, in, rate of interest, a 3% rate of economic growth, and a 4% rate of inflation. Yeah, rate yeah. Of inflation. 
Well, so two percent, see two percent inflation, three percent rate of growth, and four percent uh, interest rate. The sort of logic. Um, now, what you've got is the, what actually sets inflation is markups by firms, cost of production in terms of you know, unit costs, and wage rates. Those three. Now, their their models fundamentally come back to saying what we what we've got is a wage price spiral. So they think wages drive prices. Okay, they don't see that it can also be cost of production driving prices, which are where COVID and energy comes in, and markups by firms. And what gave us this rising inflation in the in the post-COVID period, not post-COVID, but after you know after the start of COVID, COVID okay. yeah, yeah. this COVID age, COVID yeah. age, the COVID, the COVID epoch it may turn into, <laughs> um, is the gigantic increase in the money supply meant that and, and and also the fact that some markets no longer existed during COVID and sure okay what that meant was manufacturers saw producers retailers saw no problem putting their markups up yeah because they saw no competitive pressure sure. against so that's them. that, that, that yeah. all makes sense but yeah. but, but I'm, what i'm curious about yeah. is this this long period before COVID where we started but, to see interest rates falling you're saying well that's that's because central banks were setting interest rates Lower, but you've but, also said that the market well, see, they, and the central banks can operate independently. So, or one they, is they, they they thought they were controlling it using minor fluctuations in the interest rate to control inflationary expectations. Yeah, what they're actually doing uh, by putting interest rates up, they hit credit demand. Okay, and then hit it harder than they thought they would. So they'd go in the opposite direction. And if we go back and take a look at what central banks were doing around the financial crisis. Um, they were all putting up interest rates because they expected inflation. Okay? So when you, we were approaching 2007, in virtually every central bank, we had rising interest rates because what they could see was an inflationary surge coming along. They had no bloody idea a financial crisis was approaching. And I know from speaking to individuals, managers mm. in those central banks, okay? They, they admit they were completely caught out by it. They had no idea the financial crisis was approaching. They thought they were in controlling inflation. What they were doing was making credit more and more expensive when credit was already starting to top out because of the length of the bubble. So credit suddenly collapsed. You had credit demand in America went from f equivalent to 15% of GDP in 2006 to minus 5% in 2000. So in that bang, bang they drop rates like a brick. We had the zero interest rate policy for all that length of time. And again, without understanding why, the main thing was that zero interest rate meant the the, the negative credit that we went through and the de depressing effect that had on the economy wasn't accentuated by positive interest rates. So they were forced into the... And they had no idea why they ended up in zero, the zero regime. Right. Well, OK, I want to explore more about why they did because it stuck around for, for a while and then all mm. of a sudden we seem to have gone the opposite way. I want to look at what the role of QE is yeah. in, in all of this as yeah. well because I think I'm sure that's a significant part of all of this. Don't answer it yet because we'll be back in just a second. It's the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen. Thanks for listening. Back in just a second. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Welcome back to the Debunking Economics Podcast. We're looking at uh, bond prices and what's been happening really over the last 30 years. I mean, that we, obviously, we, we saw uh, a big change during the global financial crisis. But if we look at from 1990 through to just before the pandemic, yields on, on, on bonds have gone from 8% down to 1.5%. We had a period where they were mm. pretty close to, to zero. Mm. So before the break, I was uh, you know, alluding to the fact QE had a bit to do with this. And mm. it did, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, the QE only came in and after the financial crisis. It was the first country to try it was Japan. The person to turn the, create the term was Richard Werner. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What it was done was in the belief that this would increase lending. Okay, and it, the, the, my my clearest statement of of that expectation is actually with Bernanke in two thousand and nine, I think. But you can even find it in Obama's speeches about what QE would achieve, and the whole idea about QE was to buy bonds off the banks and off the non-bank financial institutions. To push the price up, which would bring the yield down. Yeah, they'd be, be, be to flatten the yield curve across the whole spectrum. So they yeah. used to just buy short-term government bonds. Under QE, they bought short- and long-term government bonds and private bonds as well, mortgage-backed, mortgage-backed securities and so on. Yeah. So what that was, that drove interest rates down across the board. But the theory that lay behind it was without having the bonds, the banks would instead have reserves and they'd lend the reserves out. And you actually find Bernanke saying that if you read the minutes of the Open Market Operation Committee, right. you'll find them saying that... Even though they can't lend out uh, reserves. They can't lend out reserves mm. unless loans are in cash, which they're not. Mm. So this is this is what's so infuriating about it. So their, their theory about what bonds would actually do... And like my favourite was actually Obama. I'm going to see if I can do an Obama speak here. He said in the two. In his, I think his speech in February two thousand. I'm dreading this. Nine. I know you're dreading it. Okay, you, can you do Obama? <laughs> no. <I'm> just, <laughs> you can do Galway. Galway. Uh, yeah, but you, but he's but he's white. There's a bit okay, of so okay, a middle-aged well, white man doing. Well, I, I can't. Uh, I'll, I'll try yeah. to do the intonation, mm. if not the. Okay. Mm. But he said a lot of Americans say, "What are uh, worrying about? Why are the bailouts going to the banks? Where's my bailout?" They ask the. Truth is that a dollar of money in a bank can lead to eight or ten dollars of loans by banks, a multiplier effect that will boost the economy more rapidly. That's literally what poor bloody Obama was sold by Bernanke and friends. Mm. It's completely wrong about the nature of banking. But that was the basis of QE. Convert bonds into reserves, drop the yield curve as well, which made the cheap made, made the cost of servicing that ex- excessive private debt easier for people. So it did have a minor impact on that front. But the banks can't lend out reserves. What actually happened instead was they were buying bonds off non-bank financial institutions, converting bonds into cash. And what did the NBFIs do but convert the cash back into shares? <laughs> and that gave us the asset price appreciation. Right, which we definitely saw. So we saw yeah. uh, a, a big increase in share prices. My favourite about that particular line, by the way, is that the S&P bottomed at 666. 
there is a the multi- mark of the devil. The, the, but there is a, there is I mean there is a multiplier, it's not the way he's describing perhaps. But I mean if I if I, I mean if if interest rates are lower, mm. then it's easy. It's cheaper for you to borrow. So you might, See, but so you might borrow often lower because people are less willing to borrow. Right, yeah. You know, so it, yeah. it, it, it's not a causal factor. That's why, again, one one person I recommend people read is Blair Fix. Yeah, a brilliant uh, Canadian, highly empirical researcher, and Blair's done the numbers recently on interest rates and inflation, and said that in, inflation, declining or rising inflation, drives interest rates, not vice versa. Mm. So the causal mechanism that the banks think they have is actually a reactive mechanism. Right. Right. I completely get that. I think that which negates the argument that, okay, so let's make the cost of borrowing cheaper by mm. us buying up a huge swathe of bonds. Mm. So then you can go and invest in a business and then that will create a multiplier because that business will employ people and then we'll start to see the well, economy That's a fiscal grow. multiplier, not a, not a money multiplier. Yeah. The, the mistake is believing there's a money multiplier. There is no such thing as a money multiplier yeah. except in economics textbooks and the best use of those is depending on how cold it is, a fireplace, uh, maybe a boat anchor, you know, but for Christ's sake, don't read them. Yeah, yeah. But you would get a fiscal multiplier if I was borrowing money from the bank and I was investing it in, in building a business Yeah. and that's the money that was created. you get an investment Boost, yeah. yeah, because the investment because the interest rates were lower, I'm more likely to borrow well, the, but this more. But, is your, the, but your point is, you're not going to do that if you're not going to see that return. And this is because the economy's tanked. This is this is again the misinterpretation of Keynes because what that is arguing is the interest rate is the main determinant of investment. Now Keynes argued the main determinant of investment is expectations of profit, mm. and they're incredibly volatile. And interest rate is the very very cumbersome and kludgy way to control it. So the neoclassical papers that talk about the interest rate controlling the level of investment assume rational expectations. And what rational expectations means, capacity for accurate prophecy. So therefore, you know what's going to happen in the future. You know the returns. And the only variable is what rate you discount them at. And that's why they come up with this nonsense about interest rates controlling investment. So um, in this free market in which we operate, in which there's, you know, only tweaking at the edges, uh, the Bank of England bought, just tweaking at the edges, £875 billion in government bonds. And obviously that's inflated bond prices quite substantially as a result, because they've, you know, which is what they intended. Yeah. Um, But this is not tinkering at the edges, is it? This is really controlling... The economy, right from the centre, in a in a big way. I'm not sure what that is as a percentage of of, uh, of total GDP, but it's not an insignificant sum. Eight hundred seventy-five billion huge pounds. Sum. Yeah, and that's why you see this incredible inflation in reserves for the banks because when to, to buy the bonds off them, uh, the the way the bank central bank does it is it credits their reserve accounts. It doesn't put money in their deposit accounts. Uh, unless you've got um, you're buying off NBFIs, but it necessarily turns up in the reserve accounts of banks. So that's where this huge inflation in reserves has come from, and it's one reason why the and now uh, banks now get interest on payments on reserves, which they didn't use to get. Yeah. So we so it's really has. How do they get out of this? Because they really have screwed up that that relationship. Well, the thing that this is what they. I, I called it. A, I've got to look up my old blog post on debtdeflation.com about this, but I called it a pack with the devil, because if you do QE, and then the banks, then use not the banks, the non-banks, the merchant banks, use that increased cash to go and buy shares then share prices start to rise. So we saw the S&P going from 666 to about 3,000. 
uh, and then now it's bouncing all over the place. But that meant is if they start trying to reverse it, they drive share prices down. Yeah. Now, they've become beholden to the belief that they can't have falling asset prices. So once they start to see asset prices collapsing, particularly the share market, that then raises the possibility there's merchant banks. Sorry, I didn't get the right intonation there. The merchant banks um, going to be becoming illiquid again because their assets are falling, their liabilities are remaining constant, they can go bankrupt. So the possibility that the shadow banking system can fail means they try QT for too long, they cause a crash in the asset markets and go back to QE again. So a pack with the devil. Yeah. And and if 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 governments have been selling all these bonds and then they've been bought up by central banks uh through QE mm. and if the banks, the central banks, then start to say, "Well, okay, let's unwind this. Let's bring our balance sheet down. Let's start selling those uh, those bonds on the secondary they market." They cause an asset market crash. Yeah, so they don't want to do that, no. and they they also don't want. Um, I mean, presumably as well, the government doesn't it wouldn't want those you know a lot of those bonds to find themselves in a in a third party because even though that we know they're going to, have to start paying real money. To, but the real okay, money they can again buy, they is can created buy, by the, but you, which they can create for yeah. sure. Mm. But they're going to have to pay it to a to a third party. <clears throat> but I guess if they pay that to a third party, it's money that's being pumped into the economy. So that's a good thing, rather and than what being held see, by the central what, bank. What yeah. you're seeing is that that's that's why people are saying about the interest rate rises right now. Mm. Uh, it's actually increasing the amount of um, government money being created for the finance sector because mm. fundamentally these bonds are bought by non-bank financial institutions, the merchant bankers, <clears throat> and so on. Buying buying them. So if you put up interest rates, you're increasing the income of the financial sector. So how do they unwind from this then? One way is to let the, let the bonds mature. Yeah. Okay. Because at just, the end of at the end of a bond, you've got to give the face value back to the buyer. Yeah. And then the bond value falls. The value in reserves would rise. Value in deposits would rise, and they could they could do it just by aging the damn things out of existence, and that's what I thought ultimately they'd be forced into doing. But now you have the reversal of of of, of, uh, of this with the rising interest rates. Uh, you know, central banks putting up rates, which therefore reduces bond prices. So, yeah, and we had falling bond prices and falling share prices for quite a while. Does it matter though? I mean, if if those balance sheets just unwind gradually as they just well, it's don't, a gradual don't. thing that matters because if you, I mean, all banks have bad bank have bad loan provisions. Merchant bankers uh, would have similar allowances, um, so it, it's a case of letting the maturity effect come in and reduce it that way. So, and I'm, I'm the mix of bonds in the. I, bonds confuse me a lot, actually. I mean, it is it is a complicated. <clears throat> bonds are far more shares are easy to understand, aren't yeah. they? You, they go up and down. Mm. You buy you buy them, you know, and they don't have a, an age component to, to them. them. There's so many. They should. There's so many. Well, absolutely, yeah. Which we've we've talked about in the past. But there's so many dimensions to bonds because they're driven by a whole load of factors. Yeah. But I mean, but but the share market tends to get driven a lot by animal spirits, doesn't it? And the bond market less so. Oh no, there's pretty animal inside there as, as well. well. Different breed of animal, but similar sort of thing. I mean, um, and how much of that has played into where bonds have been driven then over the last decade? Well, it used to be the dominant. I mean, it's the big, biggest financial market by far is the bond market rather than the share market, uh, and that was largely you know, the, the bonds were created by the government, but there was no. You know, there was buying and selling pressure, but it was not on the scale of QE. Because what QE meant was 
the, the banks, the central bank are involved in open market operations with the private banks all the time. They're buying bonds and selling them again mm. to try to keep the interest rate within their, their, their margin, which back in the days when you had tr trivial levels of reserves. With uh, So the, the central bank would be partially on the buy side to some extent. And one of my little hypotheses is that the banks, the central banks were largely on the buy side to the scale of the interest payments on existing debt, government government debt. Um, with QE, they said we're going to be massively on the buy side. Like the, the American QE when it began uh, was $80 billion per month. So what they were saying is in all the open market operations we do, every month we're going to buy net $80 billion worth of more, more bonds than we sell. Okay? Now that's a gigantic injection of money into the of taking bonds out of circulation and therefore saying, well, if you're going to try to maintain your returns as merchant wankers, bankers, uh, what can you do? Well, you've got to buy shares, haven't you? Mm. And drive up the price of shares. Which is sense why we saw the share prices go out. Yeah. But I mean, it's but the, shares have always been seen as being a risky inv investment and bonds have always been seen as being the safe And one. now all of a sudden they're both dangerous. Now they're both dangerous. I mean, mm. the only reason, because we've seen this, uh, we, we're used to asset bubbles being you know, used as a term for the share market mm. but we don't tend to think of bond bubbles yeah but that's we've got a bond bubble that's now. what they've created yeah created yeah. by the central and it bank and will keep on going a bond bubble that's been created not by because because of the so many because it's a more technical investment i suspect yeah. there would be less likely to see bond bubbles happening yeah well, you know, no, without, without the central bank having bought however many millions of, of pounds yeah worth. so i think this is definitely a consequence of the banks central banks not understanding the monetary system because again, this might sound ridiculous to anybody who doesn't know what economists do for a living, but their models, the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, don't have banks or debt or money in them. So they have models of the economy operations which don't include the factors they've got control over. Yeah. It's ridiculous, except for the interest rate, but that, that's what they do. So they, they, they do not understand the monetary system, and yet they've got the, they're the ones who are in control of it. Yeah, so there they are trying to moderate the economy and making sure we don't get all of these bubbles. And, then and they create, cause them instead. They've they caused, caused one the share in, market in, bubble, the gigantic one right. from 2010 to 2020. Now they're causing a bond market bubble. Yeah, with what was originally seen as being the, the safest investment you can make, which is the safest investment that people... Best investment have. we could make is to shut down every economics department on the planet. <laughs> but, I mean that, but there will be people who who've got hurt by putting money into uh, investments where they were told it was safe because they're in bonds. Like and bonds, yeah. And, and losing out. So last October, the Bank of England, you know, suddenly turned back to QE for a short while, didn't they? Ten, mm. ten billion pounds worth of gilts purchased every day to try and save pension funds from mm. collapsing when we had our previous, the previous prime, prime minister, minister, whatever his or her name was. <laughs> so uh, how, nameless. How, how easily we forget. Yeah. So, so... Pension funds presumably were caught out because bond prices were falling. So mm. they, as those interest rates started to go up, so that was because they didn't have as much collateral. Presumably, mm. then, so they were they they was the, their balance sheets were looking pretty sick because the the value of the assets sitting on their balance sheet was going down because bond prices were going and down also so share much. prices going down at the same time. Yeah, yeah, but it was the bond market that the that would this because they're bigger, the bigger pension was funds. They've got to be conservative, so they've got more so-called safe assets and risky assets and the safe ones are falling in value. So there would have been a bit of a guilt, no pun intended, guilt with a U, uh, um, complex for the, for, the, for the Bank of England because, mm. of course, they will have driven up the price of those bonds through all of their QE program. 
and then all of a sudden we start to see the the world in this uh, post-COVID epoch. But now the fun is, and, you know, what are they going to do over? Because they were still seeing inflation coming in well above their so-called target. Yeah. Um, so the odds are they're going to continue putting up rates. And what happens then? How far do they go? How long do they bang their head well, against the brick wall? Before? Possibly indefinitely, but my feeling is we'll we'll see a recession coming out of this. And then when the recession hits... So it'll be uh, the Volcker too, isn't it? Exactly the same thing, a recession that is caused by... Government by policy. The, yeah, yeah, pushing up interest rates too far to yeah. try and control inflation. Which is and not They kill the inflation by killing the economy. Look at Blair Fix's analysis there about how in interest rates don't control the rate of inflation. What they can cause is a collapse in credit-based demand. And we're, that's what I'm expecting. We're likely to see if rates go much higher. Uh, people's willingness to borrow for houses, willingness to borrow for shares, like the margin loans, will just evaporate, and you'll have credit-based demand collapsing, and then they'll react to an unexpected recession. And what happens when we come out of the other side? I guess we, we all have short-term memory, so we forget what exactly happened mm. on the way in. Mm. But this safe investment in bonds, which is no longer a safe investment because we've seen this bubble, mm. Do bonds ever resume their their place as the safe investment, or do we start to see do we start to view bonds as being just as volatile as equities as as shares are? I think not quite that bad, but I think the days of believing you can actually divide investments into safe and dangerous are over. Mm. And uh, you know, it's this is approaching a long overdue end of the road for the financialization of the economy. So we think the only safe thing to do with money is to have it in cash. Stick it under the mattress. <laughs> is that the is that I the other one? Where my money is. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I think that's yeah. They, 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 we've been sucked into a financialized view of the world. That means being sucked into either bonds or shares, and we had this simplistic idea that bonds were safe and shares were volatile and that was the investment that's what investment consultants do they tell you what's your risk profile and bang they'll lend you one way or the other that's all they think they have to do in fact what we've caused is a financialized oh there's too much money in the financial sector not enough getting to the industrial production side of the economy not enough to the infrastructure uh we've just we've we've hobbled the real economy and i would for one to be glad to see the end of the days of people worrying about bonds and shares in the first place yeah well i mean we worry about it when it's money that we've 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 got to save for mm. our, for our own retirement mm. uh, and we want to see that money get the best possible return i would rather see us getting decent pensions which is what we had before we did all this paid nonsense. for by the government paid yeah, for yeah. by the government the government should be creating the money for pensions mm. and pensioners should be an income source for businesses uh long after they cease being wage slaves for the same businesses well that's a very different change from where we are now isn't it that's for sure i don't think that's going to happen though steve well but not, the, but not deliberately <laughs> like most things that he won't policy it'll happen by accident but then you'll also have people saying well that's state pensions that's fine but you know i'm a very wealthy man I, i've got a you know i want a much better standard of living than everyone else in my retirement so that's easy are, save the money and you know, go and build your own fallout shelters <laughs> ready for the ready for the uh what follows the um, the other thing I guess could happen is that um, if if it becomes too risky, even to buy safe assets like mm. bonds, then people are not going to borrow to invest quite so much in the Hopefully, investment. yeah. And less borrowing for speculation would be a damn good change out of all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it might just not be worth it. Well, let's see. Mm -hmm. All right, very good. We'll leave it there for now. We've okay. spoken enough this week. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.